1: Find triviality on all your favorite podcast apps, but you know that because you're already listening to a podcast.
0: Build World is a UK-based building supply company where you can buy. I, yeah, I was going to give you some examples, but to what end? Building supplies. You can buy building supplies. Think of something you'd need to build a house, or an office, or a barn, or whatever, and if Build World doesn't have it, well, that's just bad luck, because they do sell most of the stuff you'd need to do those things. But they also maintain a blog, as a way, I assume, to drive a little internet traffic their way and probably juice their SEO rankings. The stuff the Build World blog publishes is unremarkable, but pleasingly presented, stuff like the tallest fictional buildings, and the best holiday destinations for architecture lovers, all furnished with stylish infographics and the like. They put a lot of effort into it, honestly. A weird amount of effort into it, because how does any of it help sell nails or drywall or door handles? Hey, I did have examples. What's even more curious about the Build World blog is that sometimes these blog entries are supported by what they call original research, which gets us a step closer to why I'm talking about them. The January 11th, 2023 entry on the Build World blog got a lot of media attention. The crack team, I don't know if there's a team, at BuildWorld, used a tool called Hugging Face, which does sentiment analysis on a site that used to be called twitter.com. With Hugging Face, you can look into a topic and roughly gauge how people feel about it, how strongly they feel about it, and how many feel strongly about it, which Build world used to compile a study they called the ugliest buildings in the world. Which, methodology aside, seems like a leap. What they were really drawing was the most negatively spoken about buildings in the world, which doesn't necessarily make them the ugliest, even if we accepted unpopularity as an analog for ugliness, which would violate any number of Aesop's fables. If anything, we might say that Build World's list shows the most contentious buildings in the world, but whatever, we're already too far into the weeds here. If you're interested in architecture, you can probably make some pretty good blind guesses as to what made the cut. Number one, the ugliest building in the world, supposedly, is the Scottish Parliament building. Whereas the ugliest building in the US is the brutalist J. Edgar Hoover building, which anyone from DC would have guessed would be there somewhere. Brutalism, by the way, is very overrepresented on the list, with Boston City Hall and London's Ballfront Tower being particularly high ranking offenders. Most of the other buildings on the list, with the exception of some sports stadium and Trump Tower Las Vegas, represent the other most loathed school of architecture postmodernism. Like the MI6 building in London, the Denver International Airport, New York's Verizon building, and my city's contribution to the festivities, the James R. Thompson Center.
2: Chicago is known for its beautiful architecture, but you're right, the Thompson Center is not counted among
0: those wonderful buildings. The Thompson Center being named the eighth ugliest building in America by a UK building supply blog was enough to get it on the local Fox News.
2: In fact, it's now being called one of the ugliest buildings
0: in the world. And gave a local field reporter the chance to do some man-on-the-street interviews of people hating the Thompson Center. It is ugly. (laughs) can't help it. What's ugly about it?
3: Just the shape, you know, the colors don't match the surrounding buildings.
0: It's
2: like a stadium, you know, like a a stadium that people go and play sports at. Yeah, it's ugly.
1: Kind of UFO-like, big and round and glass. It could
0: look nice. It's just a bit kind of retro. Thompson Center haters are not hard to
3: find. The building, uh, it's old and it's tired and it probably needs to go. So this is about the Almond State Illinois building? It is. What if I hate the building?
4: We're here to find out what you think about
0: it. I think it's a piece of shit. When I went down to the loop looking for people who didn't hate the Thompson Center, the closest I could find were these two tourists. You guys here for the Thompson Center? What? Are you here for the Thompson Center? No. Oh. What is it? What is this building? We're tourists. We don't even know what this is. Oh, great. Well, I'm just here asking people about it and okay. getting their impressions of it. So before I tell you anything, what do you think of this building? <laughs> it's 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 hard it's to tell what it is. What it we kind of yeah. thought it library. Uh-huh. That's what we guessed. Um, and the colors are
3: weird with this weird pinkish color. Yeah. And then the silvery and turquoisey or gray. I mean,
0: it's a cool building. Which uh-huh. It's kind really of like just <laughs> it's
3: <laughs> yeah, really like a spaceship. Beautiful yeah. Like a spaceship inside.
0: Yes. You can only get that level of polite positivity out of Canadians. No, you can see that. It needs yeah. a little love. <laughs> a lot of love, a yeah. love. The they... Thompson Center's biggest hater, though, is definitely former Illinois governor Bruce Rauner.
3: I won't comment on the aesthetics. People, you're, in, you're entitled to your own opinions. We'll leave that for you to discuss. And in 2015, Rauner announced very loudly his intent to get rid of the sucker. We intend to close and sell the state of Illinois building, the James R. Thompson Center, move our government employees out into existing space that the state of Illinois has in Springfield and in the city of Chicago, Um, and put this building on the market to be sold to a private developer and have the property redeveloped as a more Uh, impactful, positive, commercial, office building, and retail space. The Republican Rauner faced resistance from Democratic Mayor Rahm Emanuel.
0: This is a political stunt, and he's spending more time on the Thompson Center in the last three days than he has spent on 22 months on the entire budget and funding education. And the Democratic Speaker of the Illinois House, Mike Madigan. But that was just political. They didn't like Rauner's plan, and they didn't like Rauner. But they agreed, principally, that the Thompson Center should be bulldozed.
2: Rahner says Emanuel and House Speaker Michael Madigan are working in a tag team effort to delay the sale. Madigan supports the sale. His spokesman Steve Brown says, since the sale was proposed, Madigan's staff has been meeting multiple times with the city and the state to move the project along.
0: So did Rauner's predecessor, Democratic Governor Rod Blagojevich, and his successor, Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker, who announced in 2019 a new plan to destroy the building. Iconic or an eyesore? However you view the almost 35-year-old Thompson
2: Center, the Pritzker administration is anxious to unload the huge state of Illinois building
0: that occupies an entire city block.
2: I think this would attract a lot of buyers. And the answer is, we're selling it.
0: Yes, the implosion of the Thompson Center was a rare point of bipartisan agreement in the otherwise bitterly divided state of Illinois. As local reporters frequently noted over the years, everyone agreed that the Thompson Center had to go.
3: But now the Thompson Center has become a crumbling eyesore, a dingy albatross which everyone agrees would best serve the taxpayers if it was torn down and forgotten.
0: But all of these reporters were wrong. That Build World study was wrong, too. It measured the strength of negative sentiment against the building. But just like all the governors and mayors and news crews, it failed to look for the positive sentiment. The people who didn't just like the Thompson Center, but loved it. There are, it turns out, a lot of them. And, fearing for the future of the most controversial piece of architecture in a city known for its controversial architecture, they snapped into action, formulating a series of wild plans to save it. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, 99% conspicuous. If you're on pins and needles, waiting to hear just what this supremely contentious James R. Thompson Center looks like, go ahead and get comfortable with that feeling, because that part of the episode is still a ways off. In part because just describing the building... It's tough to do. I have trouble with it, but so does everyone else I ask. Take Nathan Eddy
4: Sure, my name is Nathan Eddy. I'm the filmmaker and journalist based in Berlin and originally from the United States of America.
0: Nathan is behind one of the big efforts to preserve the Thompson Center. He produced and directed not one, but two documentaries about the building.
4: I was running through my head, oh, what could I do to express my displeasure with this plan? And I had all these, you know, crazy ideas. Like, oh, you could tie yourself to the building and, you know, and maybe get some press. And then I just thought, or
0: you could make a film about it. And yet, I'm going to put to you the task that I myself am struggling with, which is can you describe for this audio medium what the Thompson Center is and what the experience of it is?
4: Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. It's really tough. Yeah, it's tough. It's one of those things better 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 just go see it. <laughs>
1: Or take Stuart Hicks. Hello, my name is Stuart Hicks, and I run an eponymously named YouTube channel where I focus on architecture. And since I'm headquartered in Chicago, Chicago figures very heavily in the kind of stories and architecture that I feature. I'm also an associate professor and associate dean at UIC in Chicago.
0: Stuart Hicks has a really fantastic YouTube channel where he discusses, explains, and demystifies architecture intimidatingly well. A curious proportion of his videos are about, mention, or take place at the Thompson Center. So naturally, I asked him to describe it, too. Can you describe for me the Thompson Center?
1: (laughs) Okay, can I describe the Thompson Center? Okay. Sure. Um...
0: I even asked
5: Michael Wood. Uh, My name is Michael Wood. I'm the senior curator at the Chicago Architecture Center. The senior curator
0: at the Chicago Architecture Center. And he had trouble.
5: The building itself
0: um, is a little difficult to describe. So why don't we warm up with an easier chore? Can you just give me like a really 30,000 foot view of Chicago architecture history? (laughs)
1: Oh my gosh. (laughs) So, okay, uh, the fire, 1870s.
0: (laughs) Oh wow, yeah, we're really starting in it. (laughs) Maybe we'll start there. In October of 1871, the city of Chicago burned down. Something about a cow.
1: Chicago had to rebuild, and by sort of wiping the slate clean in a certain way, leaving really only the street grid... And needing to rebuild quickly, Chicago drew upon a number of resources and it became a hotbed for construction and architecture where lots of experiments and lots of things just needed to happen in order to be able to
0: reconstruct. The rebuilding process turned the bustling but newborn wooden city into the heart of architectural advancement, mainly due to William LeBaron Jenney. Jenny was an architect born in Massachusetts and trained in Paris, who settled in Chicago after the Civil War. The uh, probably legendary story of his great discovery goes that he returned home from work early one day, surprising his wife, Lizzie, who was at the time sitting next to a canary cage and reading from a big, heavy book. When she got up to greet him, she put the honking tome down next to her upon the canary cage. Seeing the flimsy steel bars easily supporting so much weight, Jenny legendarily had an idea that he could use a gigantic steel cage to support a whole building. A big building. A tall building. In 1884, Jenny submitted his plan for a new Chicago headquarters for the Home Insurance Company. After the fire, buildings in Chicago were required to be made of fire-retardant materials, brick, stone, and, critically, steel. Building out of steel meant that Jenny could try his human birdcage. Before the home insurance building, walls served a double purpose. They kept out the elements, and peeping toms too, but they also bore the load of the building itself. The roofs, the floors, the people and furniture on the floors, even the walls above them. You couldn't build very high this way, and the higher you went, the thicker and stronger the walls had to be. Tall buildings were usually tapered, almost like pyramids, with big, thick, heavy walls at their bases that grew thinner and smaller the higher they went. The tall buildings in Europe were cathedrals, which were mostly empty inside. Big, open-contained spaces that provided a religious sense of grandeur, yes, but that also limited the amount of load placed on the outer walls. But with Jenny's design, the load of the building was distributed across girders that connected to long steel columns. You didn't need heavy masonry walls to support the structure. You could build them full of windows if you liked. Technically, you didn't even need the walls. The walls of the home insurance building weren't really walls at all. In the sense of the word that had dominated for the last few millennia, they were more like curtains hanging from the steel cage, curtain walls. This was the first modern high-rise building, or skyscraper. When it was initially completed in 1885, the home insurance building was a mere 10 stories tall, 183 feet, but nothing like it had ever existed before. It was so shocking that construction had been halted midway through because city officials had to be convinced it was safe and wouldn't fall over. Later, two more stories were added. And later than that, well, okay, let's save that part. The home insurance building redefined Chicago. The stinky onion, the marshy malarial bog, the city that burnt down became the city of skyscrapers. Jenny's protégés became the founders of the Chicago school. Daniel Burnham, architect of New York's Flatiron Building. Louis Sullivan, who took Jenny's skyscrapers and ran with them, developing a whole philosophy of high rise construction under his credo, form follows function, and under the formidable title of modernism. Frank Lloyd Wright, Sullivan's star pupil. Well, I don't need to tell you about Frank Lloyd Wright, do I?
1: That push was largely commercial buildings and office buildings. So, you know, Sullivan, Burnham. Those folks were building commercial office towers.
0: Through all that time, there was kind of a push and pull in Chicago over whether it should be a city of the future or of the past.
4: The quote that's always attributed to Louis Sullivan saying that the Columbian Exposition set Chicago architecture back 30 years or 100 right. years Right, American
0: ago. architecture, I think, is what Yeah, I don't think
4: that that quote actually is was ever, there's a little cloudiness that's the said or... There's always a sort of uh, this this push and pull between we want the newest latest thing and then we also want safety. I mean,
0: Burnham's White City, built for the 1893 World's Fair, looked like high Roman architecture, and Louis Sullivan famously thought that it was a mistake that took us back to the past. Sullivan and Wright pulled the other direction, helping establish a new kind of architecture. Hopefully, befitting its surroundings and materials and functions. Then things snapped back the other way.
1: But oh, Well, let's let's go back even a little bit further. Okay, so nineteen twenties. Then you have things like the Tribune Tower competition, the 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 touch point of asking what the most beautiful office tower in the world should be, and Chicago held the competition and picked a building that looked older than what it was. You know, it it cre- it, it chose it not the. Art Deco new forward-looking building. It chose a gothic backward-looking building. And so this was a moment where Chicago sort of looked backwards instead of forwards around the way that its architecture um, participates in the city.
0: If you had to pick one guy who established the look of modern Chicago, the feel of the city, you would almost have to go with Ludwig Mies van der Rohe.
1: People trying to figure out what's what big buildings should be like uh, now that we've had, we haven't built them in a while. People like Mies come along and develop an, uh, a way of designing and building buildings that seems appropriate for the time. And so you again get a kind of forward-looking you know, like attitude toward architecture and, and buildings.
0: Mies was the last director of Germany's famous Bauhaus school until the Nazis rose to power and, with their hatred of modernism, caused him to abandon his fatherland and come to Chicago. Mies took Sullivan's form follows function aphorism to the extreme and added his own famous philosophical phrase you're definitely familiar with. Less is more. His buildings, particularly his high-rise buildings, are known as glass boxes with little ornamentation, like the Seagram Building in New York, the MLK Jr. National Library in D.C., and what feels like every fourth building you walk by in the city of Chicago. Mies van der Rohe's influence on Chicago is so great that even buildings he didn't design are still obviously in communication with the ones he did. The Hancock building, the Sears Tower, hell, even Trump Tower. They all pay some degree of homage to Mies modernism.
1: And then uh, that started to feel a little stale. People started copying it and it felt like uh, by the 1970s. And 80s that seemed like uh, maybe we're ready for something different and people like the architect stanley tigerman came along and made collages of meese buildings sinking in the lake and said we need to we need to forget that stuff we need to figure out something something fresh and new
4: people got tired of balance people got tired of the 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 perfection of something like seagram or lever or you know what have you and how many Glass and steel
0: boxes, can we possibly have? Forget modernism, said Stanley Tigerman et al. What we need is something to escape modernism, to follow modernism. It's going to be tough, so let's not spend too much time on the name. Postmodernism will do. Postmodern architects thought that modernist towers like Mies van der Rohe's were cold, stuffy, and lifeless. Sure, their form followed their function, but only in the barest of terms. So for instance, a Mies tower
1: has little I-beams that go up its size, but they don't hold up anything, and they're not even doing the work that they look like they're doing. A modernist would m- maybe look at that and say, oh my gosh, that is you're breaking the rules here because that's not doing the job it sup- lo- it looks like it's supposed to be doing versus a postmodernist would look at that and say mies is more interested in the building expressing its structural Um, concerns and it's also he's also interested in making the building look vertical by having these kind of vertical stripes and that's what those things are doing and it's not that they're fake it's not that they're that we're being lied to it's that there are other considerations around the way people understand this building beyond just the functional that are
0: also important wasn't the presentation of a building the way people experienced it and took it in part of its function? Wasn't the environment it was built in, the weather, the foliage, even the other buildings around it, weren't those part of its function? Wasn't the entire history of architecture from all over the world and the expectations that history created within people today, wasn't that part of a building's function? Postmodern architects tried to incorporate it all in wild, eclectic, and eccentric experiments. Let's bring back columns, and spires, and toppers. Let's ditch 90-degree angles and boxes, replace them with bubbles and curves and arches. But let's do it all with a smile. Like an episode of Family Guy, the reference is the joke. Oh, hey, that's almost a joke reference itself. Careful everyone, lest we trip into a pit of post-postmodernism. When old architectural ideas popped up in postmodern designs, they were through a bit of a funhouse mirror. Here's a column, but it's not attached to anything. Here's a dome, but with a big chunk cut out of it. Some postmodernists, like Michael Graves, made their buildings wildly colorful, pink, or bright yellow, or both others might subdue the colors, but make the whole structure look as if it's falling apart, melting, bowing and bending at every juncture, like Frank Gehry. Pastiche, pop art, mass production, bespoke. What exactly postmodernism was, and what it should be, was totally up for grabs.
1: And Helmut Jahn's uh, Thompson Center is a version of what
0: that might look like. It sure was. And I think we're finally ready to talk about it. After this.
6: So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: The capital of Illinois, Springfield, is 200 miles southwest of Chicago, its largest city. And this creates some problems. One of them being that there are a lot of offices and services for the state based in Springfield that need to be located in Chicago. The Secretary of State needs an office there. So does the governor, some state reps and senators. The state has financial regulators that obviously need to be near the Chicago stock market and the commodities exchange. There are oodles of state bureaucracy that need to at least have a foot in Illinois' population and economic center. And for years, All of them managed this ad hoc in privately rented offices all around town. Until the 1980s, when Governor Big Jim Thompson decided to build a home away from home, a centralized second seat of state government in Chicago. Well, the building
5: itself was originally commissioned to be the office for the state of Illinois in Chicago. It was meant to conglomerate a bunch of smaller offices into one uh, important
0: locus for the state's work, for governmental work in the heart of the loop. And rather than build another glass box to hold it all, Big Bill stayed true to his name. He took a big swing. He had a commission that recommended simpler, easier, more conventional designs for the new state of Illinois building. To which he said, thank you very much and went with the wild one. Courtesy of one of the most flamboyant masters of postmodernism, Helmut Jahn.
1: Helmut, you know, won the, the commission for this and um, it was uh, an experiment and it embodied what people thought a civic kind of building should be at the time.
5: Helmut Jahn is a real force of nature, a globally recognized architect, um, and certainly one of the really, truly great Chicago architects that we've had. Mm-hmm. Uh, in recent memory, he, um, he built all around the world. He built a really important United Terminal at O'Hare International Airport. So he, he Yeah, the a, one with all the
0: moving lights, right?
5: Yes. Well, that was a collaboration uh, with an artist. Um, and I think you're talking about the Undercroft that connects two concourses. It's a super, right. super important project in a lot of ways. And um, very signature for him in that he was able to create a delightful passage from one airport concourse, concourse to the next, which is generally a stressful and um, <laughs> not, the greatest, not the greatest journey usually from point A to point B. And he managed to figure out a way to really make it uh, delightful.
0: Yeah, I remember as a, when I was younger, it was, if I had to go through O'Hare and I didn't end up going through that, it always felt like such a <laughs> disappointment. disappointment. Yeah,
5: sure, of course, of course. Well, he, he did a lot of shock Uh, of energy like that in many of his buildings.
2: But there was nothing soft about his work. The bold artist, nicknamed Flash Gordon, was unafraid to push the envelope.
0: I mean, for a while in the 80s, he wore a fedora and cape, and even pulled it off. Helmet Yon was just different, and so were his buildings. You're probably familiar with some of them, even if you don't know the Thompson Center and so he became
5: a, a monumental figure.
2: The German architect was the brains behind places like the Thompson Center, Ogilvie, the Mansueto Library, University of Chicago. His genius was turning everyday places into an experience.
0: If you've spent much time in Kansas City, both the convention center and the indoor stadium Hyvie Arena are his. The Bank of America Tower is the tallest building in Jacksonville, Florida. One America Plaza is likewise the tallest building in San Diego, Park Avenue Tower, City Spire, and 425 Lex in New York. After seeing the Thompson Center, the president of Sony hired him to design their new center in Berlin. So in Berlin here, and I mean, I remember the first
4: time I walked into the Sony Center,
0: I said, ah, this is like the Thompson Center. I think his most iconic buildings are probably 1 and 2 Liberty Place in Philadelphia, which have been the defining features of Philly's skyline since their construction in the mid-80s. Of
4: the Philadelphia skyline, right after 1 Liberty Place was done. And I mean, it just looks so crazy, right? Because it's so much taller than everything else in the city. And it's obviously from a completely different aesthetic
0: universe. You've probably seen One and Two Liberty Place towers before. If you can't picture them, think of a couple of big Art Deco New York skyscrapers, like the Chrysler and the Empire State. But then strip them of a bunch of their polygons and make them entirely out of glass. That's One and Two Liberty Place, and that's Jan's postmodernism. He didn't just build buildings you've never seen before. He built buildings that you almost seen before. Helmut Jahn's projects are all over Chicago, but most of them are commercial. The state of Illinois building would be different. It was a public building, a space owned literally by the state and doing the people's business. And everyone I talked to and read and heard from described it as a fundamentally optimistic idea.
4: That part of the purpose of this building and of this space was to be aspirational and to offer a sense of optimism about not only government, but about the civic nature of architecture, the way that a lot of you know other great
1: civic architecture does. And it embodied what people thought a civic kind of building should be at the time. It was very open and connected with the city infrastructure.
5: The trope was that he was trying to make or show or put government in a light of transparency. So the idea was by walking into the building you could see and be privy to um, the people's business, you know, to see to see the state work. That was sort of the bold idea
0: um, and the, I guess, optimistic tone that the building struck. Helmut Jan believed that if this were to be a civic building, it should have civics at the center of its identity. It should be open, transparent, welcoming, and really, really difficult to describe. It's been likened to a stadium.
2: It's like a stadium, you know, like a, a stadium that people go and play sports at. Yeah, it's ugly. To
0: a shopping mall.
1: That might seem a little silly and outdated to us now, but I think in earnest that was kind of, you know, what what could this be? You know, malls seem really popular as public spaces. Could public spaces learn from malls? A 17-story squared donut.
0: But most frequently, to an alien spaceship.
3: It's it sits. Crouched like some alien spacecraft among the towers of the downtown skyline, the 17-story Thompson Centers looked like a spaceship. It landed in the heart of the Loop. People think it kind of
5: looks
0: like a spaceship. The title of your documentaries, "Starship," uh, where did you come up with that
4: uh, title? I stole that. That's a headline from a Chicago Tribune article from like 1985.
0: Right. I mean, it's a cool building. It's, uh-huh. it's, it's kind really just yeah, like a, just, spaceship.
4: <laughs> it yeah, really like a beautiful spaceship inside.
0: Yeah. Yes. And while that's true, it's not at all clear why or how it's true. Because it doesn't look like any particular alien spaceship you've ever seen. It's been likened to sci-fi movies like Flash Gordon, Gattaca, and Fritz Lang's Metropolis. But can you tell me what what it's like for you to actually approach or enter it? Can you give me that oh. firsthand sort of sensorial experience?
1: So when I come upon it, depending on the direction, I pretty quickly notice the difference of the design of the different sides. So the flatness of one side versus the, the shape of the other.
0: The Thompson Center takes up an entire square city block. And although it's only 17 stories tall, tiny compared to most Chicago real estate, it has this imposing, looming quality about it from the outside. I do notice the reflections of
1: the building across the street in it. And in some buildings, you know, which are reflective and glass, those that idea of the reflection sort of being part of the experience doesn't
0: register so much for me, but in that building it does. On its least experienced western side, which faces some of Chicago's iconic elevated train lines, it's a flush surface of metal and glass straight up. On its north and south sides, it presses outward from the street level, overhanging the sidewalks like it's going to grow out into the street with big, long, metal columns all along the perimeter.
4: Almost the entire sort of southwest to northeast corner of the building is dominated by this kind of slumped, three-tiered, broad curve that swings across and leaves this sort of pie-shaped plaza in front of the building.
5: So when you when you come up to the building, you know
0: you're in the presence of something important and civic. And it's from the plaza that you get the best chance to look up and see the weirdness of it all.
1: The other side, because the reflection is of the sky, not the buildings across the street because of its angle, it's
0: just 17 stories. But it looks like a glass mountain receding, ridge after ridge, up to some invisible summit.
4: What greets you as you walk towards the building is this unbelievably broad, almost lazy slope uh, and curve of this building, which is all glass, and depending on whether they bothered to wash the windows that day or not, Uh, and where the sun is in the sky, you can see into the building. So you have the cognizance that you're looking at this very sort of thin membrane with this structural steel uh, sort of skeleton that's holding this curtain wall up. And so that gives you a glimpse of sort of what you can expect
0: inside. The other three sides of glass reflect the buildings around them. But the cutaway in front of the plaza with its mountainous angles instead reflects something you don't always get to see in the middle of a downtown congested with skyscrapers, the sky. And if the light is just right and the windows are clean, you can get a glimpse from the plaza of the inside, which is where the Thompson Center gets really special. And then going in,
1: I immediately look up and feel the the sort of buzz of activity of people. You know, you hear it.
0: Walk inside and you will notice it right away because the chances are you've never been in anything like it.
5: The the entire middle of the building, uh, the floor plate is is carved out so as to create a a unified atrium all the way up to the roof. So it has an enormous... um, empty and open gathering space underneath a, a um, an enormous glass skylight.
4: You know, the, his, this, this sense of scale, this sense of awe, I think it's more, I think maybe that's why people have such an emotional response to the building, is because it is designed to elicit such a strong emotional response. It's such an overpowering odd thing.
0: Where you'd expect to see a lobby, instead there's nothing. It's empty. From floor to ceiling, the whole front of the building is just space. You can look all the way across. You can look all the way up and into every floor, like a European cathedral.
4: I think that's what attracted me to it. You know, you feel when you're inside of it, that you're in somebody else's cinematic universe and somebody's aesthetic universe.
0: And you can look into every floor. They're all wide open, not in some cubicle-less corporate office kind of way, but like actually wide open. You can see from ground level people working on the 14th floor. You can see the elevators traveling up and down because they're glass on all four sides and sit right there in the middle of the atrium. The stairways are open to the atrium, too. The effect is stunning.
4: The city space is given over to the idea that architecture should be allowed to have this kind of effect on you. That's something that we do not have in the United States, with the exception of, you know, uh, various places. You know, Philip Johnson once said the best two buildings or the best two pieces of architecture in New York City are not buildings. It's the Brooklyn Bridge and Central Park. You are given space, you are given drama, you are given
0: context. I was going to say that the next best thing for understanding what it's like is to think of a big football arena, but that doesn't really work, because for the most part, I think those giant stadiums feel like you're outside, yet somehow have a roof over your head. The Thompson Center is the opposite. You feel like you're inside, but there's no roof over your head. Like you've entered into a pocket dimension, a separate impossible planet, both inside and beyond the Earth. Really, the next best thing for understanding what it's like is the Pantheon in Rome. And no, I'm I'm not saying the Thompson Center is better than the Pantheon. I'm not that deluded a Chicago Booster. But as far as spaces that create the sensation, I simply don't know of many others. It's an enormous, it's, it's the largest enclosed public gathering place
5: in downtown Chicago.
4: And so the Thompson Center is not Grand Central Station and it is not the Pantheon and it is not Sharts, but it is uh, undoubtedly overwhelming and spectacular and leaves you with a kind of a giddy feeling. There's a joy in it and there's a hopefulness in it, which I don't think is cynical, which I think to this day rings very true.
5: There's an undeniable charm and energy to the building, uh, if for no other reason than it is unlike any other space. And so you you know you're someplace that is not any place. You're someplace unique.
0: Right about now, if you've never actually seen the Thompson Center or been inside the Thompson Center, you should be thinking, Wow, this place sounds incredible. Why would anybody hate it? Well, by golly, there are reasons. For one, and I think this actually might be the most important thing, there are the colors. What I haven't mentioned yet is the colors. In another nod to its government nature, Helmut Jahn chose for the building to be red, white, and blue. But not like normal red, white, and blue. Um,
5: And it has a a real shocking pale pink and light blue color, kind of a a play on red, white, and blue and its governmental function. The
0: white is more of a beige. The blue is like a robin's egg. And I think most critically, the red isn't really red at all. It's salmon pink. And there is a lot of salmon pink. Even people who really love the Thompson Center, people like Stuart and Nathan and Michael, they all stammer a little over the salmon pink.
5: Um, and And certainly a scheme that is, if not trapped at a time when the decision was made, Uh, At the very least, it's a color you don't see every day. Uh, Buildings are generally not
0: salmon pink. And there are a lot of ways in which, one could argue, the Thompson Center didn't live up to its goals of transparency and openness.
4: That was another big uh, programmatic uh, challenge or failure of the Thompson Center is that at the end of the day, it was a government building. And so it wasn't open after 5 p.m. It wasn't open on the weekends. It was, such a, it was always such a sad thing. You know, you'd have friends come and visit uh, for the weekend in Chicago and you could just take them up to the doors and sort of look in. But of course, the experiential demand of that building is that you infiltrate it and you clamber around on it like a big jungle gym for archer nerds or something.
0: Not to mention that after 9-11, security checkpoints kept most of the public out of most of the Thompson Center. Very few civilians have ever gotten a chance to climb the open-air staircases or ride the transparent elevators, although most who have agreed that the whole thing causes profound vertigo.
3: If there is a motif here, at first glance, it seems to be height. Look, if you dare, at the open stairways high above the marble rotunda. The workers dare every day.
4: People get a little antsy, my dad included, if you're really high up and you've just got like a big open space that Look down on the glass elevators, freaked people
0: out a lot. The openness created its own issues. The building is loud, especially near the atrium, and especially because underneath the atrium and the astonishing marble floor is a food court. The food court is something
5: that a lot of us experienced. It's one of the one of the parts of the building we know well.
0: at which I took most of my lunches for several years when I worked nearby. The food court also meant that this smell, an amalgam of Burger King, falafel, bourbon chicken, Sparrow pizza, Taco Bell, and Cinnabon, wafted up through large swaths of the building. Workers at the Thompson Center definitely complained about that, but what they chiefly complained about was the climate control.
3: But other state workers say it's noisy, the food court smells, and it's too hard to heat or cool as needed.
5: It's um, air conditioning, it's HVAC uh, power was undersized. The glazing wasn't quite up to snuff on on the glass. And so the state workers immediately complained of
0: it being too hot in summer and too cold in winter. That humongous open area in the middle of the building made it incredibly difficult to cool and heat, and the 17-story curtain wall was built with single-paneled glass, making it even harder. Just a couple of years into the building's life, stories started running showing workers wearing full winter coats, hats, and gloves in the winter. Um, and there are a lot of, you know, pretty funny photos of, of people
5: in beachwear going to work or with a an umbrella to shade them from the sun and
0: and that sort of thing. Getting the HVAC problem under control to the extent that was ever managed was an expensive ordeal.
3: They had to put additional equipment down into the sub-basement and then pump chilled water all the way up to the 17th floor to augment the system, which really drives up the operating costs of the building. And even then, it made for a hard bit of math in a
0: cash-strapped state. Why pay more money for more energy
3: to regulate a building, a healthy percentage of which is thin air. This building is ineffective for the people who work here, all of whom are eager to move somewhere else. It's noisy. It's hard to meet with your colleagues. It's hard to move through the building. Very, very ineffective. Uh, Noise from from downstairs, smells from the food court, all get into the offices, most of which are open here. Very hard to conduct effective work uh, in this building. Very inefficient, large, open space. Um, You as taxpayers are paying a fortune to heat and cool this space. Governor Bruce Rauner,
0: a slash-and-burn, pro-privatization, shrink government until you can drown it in a bathtub Republican, he hated the Thompson Center. This thing that was meant to be a metaphor for the transparency of government appeared to him to be a metaphor for the inefficiency of government.
5: Um, And so, in a way, it became a butt of a joke uh, of of a building that, you know, maybe wasn't put together properly in a way that you could then glom on to um, inefficient or ineffective state government. Um, And so kind of tying those ideas together in in a
0: way, um, it found itself getting the short end. And even his tax-and-spend Democratic adversaries more or less agreed. When Governor Pritzker put the building up on the auction block in 2019, he estimated that just getting the Thompson Center its necessary upkeep and maintenance would cost 300 million
3: dollars. With rusting pillars outside and tattered carpet and furnishings inside, it's estimated it would cost 300 million just to fix it up. You can see the damage to the floor, damage to the walls, damage to the ceiling.
2: In the fire control panel room, doors are kept open all the time.
3: In order to make sure that uh, the temperatures inside are kept as low as we can, given the uh, ambient temperature in the room, and that we don't have uh, the panels overheat and circuit boards uh, um, get damaged or destroyed, which by the way are obsolete and very difficult or impossible for us to obtain.
5: Water damage on the
2: walls of the Thompson Center Auditorium. Soundproofing paneling sags from moisture and age. Carpet in a hallway near Governor Rauner's office is held together with duct tape. Well, Jackie mentioned the issues, but I've known people who work there and they definitely say, you know, it's ice cold in the winter, it's burning up hot in the summer. They have pests running through there. I think we've had several stories that we did on bed bugs in that area, roaches, things like that. It's kind of a mess.
1: The building ran into a lot of, you know, problems. And I guess part of the argument that I that I make about the building is that I think it just kind of didn't find its story, it didn't find its narrative. It got co-opted by this other narrative of its um, sort of, uh, you know, its cost and its failings for how it, you know, was hot and things like that. And, I, and it, it just didn't build a, a significant base of people that were sort of in on the rest of the
0: story of the building. Of course, very little of this was the Thompson Center's fault or Helmut Jahn's. The state hadn't done the necessary upkeep of the building from the very start. They'd cheaped out on the windows in the HVAC system even before the ribbon cutting.
4: It's frustrating because they're making arguments that only make sense because they're made sort of cynically. How do you mean? Well, the state can't afford the building. Uh, Well, it's because the state never kept the building up. And so (laughs) now you're saying that we can't have nice things because we don't take care of them.
0: Altogether, the Thompson Center was between a rock and two hard places. The state didn't want it, and frankly, the state had proved it didn't deserve it either. But who would possibly buy it? Rouner had wanted to tear it down, but as in so many things, Bruce Rauner didn't understand the complexities of his position. Because the Thompson Center isn't just a civic building by its design, or its occupants, or even its ownership. It's also a civic building because it's critically important to the city's infrastructure. There's an L-stop built into the building and a subway line running beneath it. It is the busiest single stop on the entire Chicago transit system, a transfer point for six different train lines. The city's pedway, a subterranean walking path with businesses and service access, runs right through it too. Tearing the sucker down without disrupting the two million commuters that pass through it every year would be a Herculean feat. So, realistically, if you were going to sell the Thompson Center, you'd need to sell it to someone who would keep it. But who would possibly want to do that? Well... That is where the Preservationists came into things.
4: Enter the Preservationists.
0: Welcome. I'm uh, Jonathan Solomon. Uh,
1: this is A.J. LaTrace and uh, Elizabeth Blasches, and um, together we form the James R. Thompson Center Historical Society.
4: Since October, three volunteers calling
0: themselves the James R. Thompson Center Historical Society have led public tours through the building. After Rouner's announcement, and again after Pritzker's, preservationists and architects snapped into action, looking to find a way to stir up public sentiment in favor of the city's least beloved building. The James R. Thompson Center Historical Society continues its public tours. Members hope to speak to the powers that be. Those forces included Nathan Eddy, who produced not one, but two documentaries about the Thompson Center, Starship One and Starship Two.
4: And then I just thought, or you could make a film about it.
0: They included Helmut Jahn himself, who recognized that one of the main issues people had with the Thompson Center was its height. Why have a 17-story building taking up a whole square block where most developers would prefer a 70-story tower or a 117-story tower? Jahn submitted a redesign that essentially slapped a super tall 109-story building onto it preservationists took to the airwaves, making their arguments for the building live on local television.
2: IIT professor and former Sun-Times architecture critic Lee Bay joins us now to talk about the future of this iconic 17-story building in the loop. Lee, thanks for joining us. You, You don't want it shut down. You want it to be reused, right?
3: You no, know, I do. Uh, I totally understand the state not wanting to reuse the building, uh, but as it offered the building for sale, uh, it would have been nice to have preservation listed as an option given how good we are when we want to be in this city with preserving um, uh, interesting and, and historic buildings. You might expect Ward Miller of Preservation Chicago wants to preserve the Thompson Center. He says the state isn't trying hard enough. We shouldn't be
1: losing these great works of art of the 20th century. And I know this is a controversial building and
3: postmodernism in, in general and mid-century modern is controversial, but maybe the next generation will appreciate it more than some of us in our current generation.
0: But the loudest, Most attention-getting effort for saving the Thompson Center came from Michael Wood's Chicago Architecture Center, as well as the Chicago Architectural Club. The CAC and the CAC, CAC squared teamed up to create a competition. Uh, So the Chicago Architecture Center has a long history
5: of partnership with another um, volunteer-led architecture organization in town called the Chicago Architectural Club. Um, And the Architectural Club run a series of competitions. And one of one of the important ones they run every other year is called the Chicago Prize. And so we worked together to think of um, a Thompson Center Ideas Competition as the, the theme for their 2021 Chicago Prize. Um, and so we solicited ideas from all around the world about ways to reposition the building and what interventions could be done um, to support Uh, The initial aims and and value the property conveyed and the initial um, intent of what um, Helmut was
0: thinking with the design. Architects from all over the world, from students to famous international firms, submitted redesign plans to preserve the Thompson Center. They made a big splash.
2: We all know by now the state of Illinois Thompson Center is up for sale. So there's a new architectural design competition that is calling for new creative visions for that building. It's in a competition sponsored by the Chicago Architecture Center. Its purpose? To bring the building into the 21st century and preserve it as a public space, saving it from demolition now that it's up for sale. (laughs) The
5: competition
2: is sponsored by um, the Chicago Architecture Center in the Chicago Architectural Club. And they're trying to generate some interest in the building, which is up for sale and preservationists are worried that it could wind up being demolished by whoever the eventual buyer is. The building is so interesting and um, Elva, I wanna ask you, you guys had like, was it more than 50 people who actually tried to get in on this and you have seven finalists Um, Tell me, some of these ideas are uh, crazier than others.
0: There were plans to build skyscrapers jutting out of the cutout atrium dome and completing the mountainous feel of the building. Multiple plans to turn the 17-story glass curtain wall into a projection screen, with living images and videos larger than life shooting out from within. A plan that filled the empty atrium with a bevy of orbs and cylinders and other stranger non-Euclidean shapes.
5: So we did get quite a range of ideas, and that that was sort of by design.
0: In the end, three winners were chosen. One turned the upper levels into residential housing, the lower levels into retail, and the ground floor into a public park, blowing out the curtain wall completely and opening up the atrium partly to the elements and turning the whole complex into something between an urban garden and an urban farm.
5: There were a lot of examples of urban agriculture, a
0: lot of um, greenery inside the building. Another envisioned the Thompson Center as a radical new high-capacity school. And the third, (laughs) the one that really got everybody going, was the pool.
4: There's nothing traditional about the Thompson Center, so it should come as no surprise that one of the finalists in a design competition for the building proposed
2: an indoor water park. The proposal is to turn it into a water park. Joining us to tell us more about this is Alva Rubio with the Chicago Architectural Club and David Rader, he is with the architectural firm Perkins and Will, which is responsible for that water park plan.
0: Perkins and Will's design transformed the whole Thompson Center into a water park, with 17-story twisty slides crisscrossing around and even outside of the open atrium.
2: Your group is saying, don't tear it down, turn it into a water park. So how was that concept created? You know, we
1: heard while we were doing some research that uh, employees used to wear their swimsuits to work because (laughs) it was so hot (laughs) while the glazing. So we kind of took that as our starting point and said, well, maybe it always should have been a water park.
0: People loved the water park idea. A water park inside the Thompson Center?
2: It sounds fantastical, but if left to the designers at Chicago-based Perkins & Will, that is what they would do with it.
4: Chicago's Thompson Center become a water
2: park? Hmm. But T, you'll remember this, at one point they were pitching several ideas, and I think you were with me on this, T, that we both liked the water park idea. They were going to turn that atrium into a be perfect for a water slide.
0: Everyone loved the water park idea
2: but a I guess they went and had like frozen have, half the year. The slide
0: outside
3: <laughs> the building too, yeah. so, and have it clear as well, so you can see where you're going. Oh. I thought it was genius. They should have just called us Roseanne. <laughs> I don't know why they didn't. And whenever I think,
4: oh, that's a little too much, isn't it? I think, no, no, people wanted to put water slides inside the Thompson Center. Push it, push it, you know? We all know that if it turned into a water park, it would be the
0: world's greatest indoor water park. <laughs> I know. I, we want that. Come on. I know. It'd be great. I especially loved the water park idea. Was it realistic? No, but that wasn't the point. The, the idea behind the Chicago
5: Prize and with most of the club's work is to think about um, what are important conversations that should be advanced that either strengthen architectural practice or strengthen Chicago. Um, and this this was seen as a, a unifying idea where the architecture community should be able to express itself freely and openly Um, and if there were ideas um, that could help the fate of that building that um, that's why people would join the, the, the prize.
1: And there's a way for this building to be current in the sense that it is there are lots of conversations around how to reuse it and so that that's partially why I think it figures so strongly.
4: And so I think that the work that the Chicago Architecture Center does in encouraging people, particularly young people, to think creatively about adaptive reuse and about the built environment and then present the findings uh, of those searches to uh, a general public or an audience, uh, I think can only be encouraged and something that we should you know, that we should be uh, thinking a lot more about. Obviously, the the next step to take then is sort of convincing developers or convincing investors that some of these radical ideas, quote unquote, uh, are in fact not so radical and that we have to be thinking very differently about what we're going to do with some of these things and that, you know, the bottom line cannot always be uh the consideration or the maximization of profit in these ventures cannot always be the overriding principle.
0: And it worked. Well, eh, kinda. Love
2: it or hate it, the Thompson Center is going to be new and improved. Governor Pritzker and Mayor Lightfoot celebrated the final sale today with a surprise twist. The Thompson Center will be the new home to Google.
3: When the project is done, The first Googlers will be walking into this atrium for an entirely redeveloped and truly magnificent experience, one that comes as Google continues to dramatically expand its footprint in Illinois.
0: Yes, in 2022, after decades of people trying to tear it down and years of people trying to prop it up, Google, of all things, bought the Thompson Center, which will be their new Chicago headquarters.
4: What are we doing here? We are taking a building that was fundamentally designed and conceived around the idea of an open government building that the public would have access to, unfettered access to, except on, after five and on the weekends, and that part of the purpose of this building and of this space was to be aspirational but uh what happens when you take all of that away when we talk about you know taking moving away from that color scheme so completely and moving a giant tech company into it um what, at the end of the day, are we left with? Have we... Does the Thompson Center still exist?
1: The privatization of public space is an ongoing theme, Mm -hmm. especially here in Chicago. And while that building, you know, its publicness wasn't always exactly delivered upon, or the extent of its publicness wasn't always delivered upon, it would close on the weekends and things like that, Giving over a public structure like that to a private entity reeks of like dystopian sci-fi films to me. Not that I think Google's evil or anything like that, but but when I feel this like branded takeover of a public thing like that,
0: and something that was it, so explicitly
1: public, exactly, like it was so intended to be explicitly public. Yeah, to turn that over to something private. You know i don't have any animosity toward google i think google's cool um so like to me it's not anything about the the particularities of that transaction other than i find it very disheartening that this transaction had to happen at all Mm -hmm. that um that the only way to to keep a building like this was for the sit for the state to go into a relatively anonymous tower instead of a you know this really public structure and for uh, it to be sold to private entities that w- will be using it in its own way. I think it's, it's sad that that's how it had to happen.
5: I, I think we are cautiously optimistic that, A, the building will be returned to good health. The building itself uh, will be looked after. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think some form of public access most likely will be maintained, but whether it's of the same quality yeah. Uh, remains to be seen and exactly how generous those public spaces are and what is private company property and what is public space for the city. I don't know if any of us know exactly how that will be negotiated.
0: Just a couple of weeks ago, the first demolition permits were issued and we're getting a better picture of what the Google Center will eventually look like. The salmon pink and robin's egg blue, they are gone. The curtain wall? Rebuilt to provide green space on multiple new terrace levels. The atrium and the floor? Well, their future is still a little unclear. As is the food court. And just how much public access there will be after the privatization of one of the most expressly public buildings built in American history. But the general consensus seems to be that this is the best outcome the Thompson Center could have asked for. How cold that comfort is remains to be seen. At least in some form, something approximating the Thompson Center will persist, and hopefully down the line, we'll come to appreciate it for the marvel that it is. One day, perhaps, tourists will stream by to see it. The way they come to see the Sears Tower, the Hancock Building, Marina Tower, the Chicago Civic Opera House, and of course, The first skyscraper ever built, William LeBaron Jenny's home insurance building. Oh no, well no, not that last one. Because you see, they demolished the first skyscraper in 1931, before anyone understood or appreciated the importance of what they had.
3: Even if you do not know his name, you certainly know the mark that he left on Chicago's skyline. Architecture titan Helmut Jahn is dead at the age of 81.
0: On May 8, 2021, Helmut Jahn was struck by two cars when riding his bike near his home in St. Charles, Illinois, guaranteeing what had long been evident, that there will never be another building like his Thompson Center.
3: His death is being mourned around the world. CBS 2's Marissa Parr joins
4: us downtown from uh, one of his best known buildings, the Thompson Center,
0: Marissa. He was 81 years old, and up until the moment he died, he kept designing and working and revising.
5: I I, I personally think Helmut was a brilliant designer. He had several schemes for the building. He thought the winning scheme was the most generous in terms of its... Uh, its purpose, its communication to a public space, um, to its optimism for what government could achieve. Um, and he was an adopted son to Chicago. So I I, I take all of that with a, a, a lot of sincerity from Helmet, um, But he was a great designer. He could come up with lots of solutions to lots of problems. Um, and so I think in this case, He would be happy for anyone talking about a building, whether we like the building or not like the building, he'd much rather be talked about and debated about and suffered over than to think of it as something we could ignore or just live with. And in that way, all of it is honoring his legacy because it is a special place. I think it would be a shame for us to not recognize that. So much of the city's reputation is built on uh, our architecture and. Why would you get rid of something like that? You, those, those don't grow up every day. Those are special places.
0: It's not a shortcoming of mine or of Michael's or Nathan's or Stewart's that we all have such trouble describing the Thompson Center. And that's not really about the nature of the Thompson Center either. Not mainly, at least. If there were only one tree in the world and no word for it, and you were tasked with explaining it to someone far away What could you say? It's like a bush on a flagpole, a column with a fro, a beanstalk with ambition. Descriptive language, indeed language itself, is predicated upon the existence of common reference. If there were thousands of Thompson Center-esque buildings throughout the world, conveying its shape and form would be easy. If there were dozens of Thompson-likes in Chicago, there'd be no controversy about its existence, and no great effort to save it. But there aren't. There's just the one. Music for today's episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. A very special thanks to Stuart Hicks, Nathan Eddy, and Michael Wood for sharing their expertise and their passion in this episode. Stuart's YouTube channel is wonderfully entertaining and informative. You can find it by searching his name or by following the link in the show notes. You can find Nathan's Vimeo page in the show notes, too, and watch his documentaries about the Thompson Center, Helmut Yan and a bunch of other fascinating endangered buildings. As for the Chicago Architecture Center, well, the best way to experience them is to come to town and take a boat tour. But, failing that, you can explore their website and projects, including more info on the Thompson Center-themed Chicago Prize in the show notes, too. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home, for now, and with luck forever, to Helmut Yon's James R. Thompson Center, this has been The Constant. It's been likened to sci-fi movies like Flash Gordon, Gattaca, and Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Fritz Lang did make Metropolis, right? I'm not gonna fucking thank you. Okay, great. (laughs) That'd have been a big matzo ball on my face.